Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In recent episodes of this podcast, we've explored the policies and practices of the social media platforms with regard to elections. With the U.S. midterms fast approaching, how the platforms implement their policies, resource the teams responsible for monitoring false claims, and work with civil society groups on the ground is crucial. And of course, the relationships between social media and elections is not just a problem in the United States. It is well understood that for all the shortcomings of the tech platform's approach to elections in this country, it's much worse abroad, where often language and cultural barriers combine with fewer political and business incentives to put in place the necessary resources. In this week's podcast, we'll hear two segments. First, an interview with Daniel Kreese, the Edgar Thomas Cato Distinguished Associate Professor in the Husband School of Journalism and Media at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and a principal researcher at the UNC Center for Information, Technology, and Public Life. With PhD candidate Eric Brooks, Daniel is the author of Looking to the Midterms, The State of Platform Policies on U.S. Political Speech, a recent post at Tech Policy Press. Then, we'll zoom out and discuss the trajectory of tech company policies on elections over the last 26 years with Katie Harbath and Collier Fernickes, authors of a recent report for the Bipartisan Policy Center that was based on an archive of public announcements made by the firms. First up, let's get caught up on the present day with Daniel Kreese. Uh, my name is Daniel Kreese. I'm a principal researcher at the UNC Center for Information, Technology, and Public Life. Daniel, I appreciate you with your uh, student, Eric Brooks, uh, helping to write this Looking to the Midterms, the State of Platform Policies on U.S. Political Speech for Tech Policy Press, a kind of update to your 2020 report titled Enforcers of Truth, Social Media Platforms and Misinformation. You've steeped yourselves in platform policies on election uh, misinformation and media manipulation. What did you find? First of all, let's go back to 2020, just for a a quick minute in the run-up to the 2020 elections. What we found was sort of an endless array of very flexible policies that were continually evolving uh, over the course of that election cycle. And I think one of our big broad conclusions was that both as a matter of policy and as a matter of enforcement, the platforms were pretty ill-equipped to deal with the political threats um, that were facing the country. Um, When it came to denying the legitimacy of the election, when it came to casting doubt uh, about whether that election would be free and fair, when it came to preemptively working to heading off political violence. And I think that was on full display on January 6th, 2021, the attempted coup at the US Capitol. Fast forward, two years now heading into the midterms, I think one really positive thing that we've seen is that now securing election integrity and preventing political violence is much better articulated among all the major uh, U.S. operating platforms. And I think that's really important to just highlight and note and pause for a minute. There is clearly better thought out policies, 
there's more anticipatory policies, and I think there's a much clearer commitment to embracing platform roles as democratic gatekeepers in the sense of taking on the responsibility for election integrity in the U.S. For this particular installment of your review, you've looked at Meta, so Facebook and Instagram chiefly, uh, Twitter, YouTube, Reddit, and TikTok. Only a couple of years ago, TikTok was saying, you know, we're not about politics. Uh, This is an entertainment site. Um, That's clearly changed. Yeah, I mean, you know, TikTok's rise um, really to become a dominant platform, one that's incredibly innovative and vibrant and has very wide reach and has brought in new audiences, younger audiences, I think has made it a political player by default. And, you know, I I think political uses, specifically political uses of the app um, have been halting and certainly not as widespread as the attention that's, you know, that campaigns and political actors lavish on on Twitter, primarily to reach journalists and Facebook, primarily to reach, you know, older voters. Um, But I think TikTok, by virtue of simply its its reach and its ability, I think, really to drive conversations across many other platforms and mediums has become newly politically important. And therefore, I think you know, they need now to very clearly uh, think about, you know, their roles in exactly the sorts of things um, when it comes to election denialism or, you know, voter suppression than as the other platforms do. Your piece for Tech Policy Press is not a review of the implementation of these policies. You're literally kind of analyzing, uh, you know, what the words on the page are. You know, one thing I was struck by in looking at your update on uh, Twitter is kind of thinking about the document that was exposed in the whistleblower disclosures from uh, Peter Zatko, Mudge, uh, as they called him. And there just appeared to be this massive disconnect between what Twitter was saying it wanted to do with regard to election misinformation and what clearly internally it was set up to do and what technically it could do. You didn't address it necessarily in this piece. Um, It was kind of outside the scope. But do you see a concern there that these are all the right words on paper and yet (laughs) still a massive problem? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up because this is a very, very key limitation, not only of our report, but frankly, a limitation of the requirements that we have in the U.S. on platforms to be accountable for their enforcement of policy. The reality is all these companies can state what their policies are, um, but they're not required to provide any information on enforcement of those policies on actions that they've taken against various bad actors. They can say that they do so voluntarily. And in fact, Facebook, for instance, has, you know, an ad transparency database and, and, you know, that catalogs various ads and their reach and targeting, et cetera. But at the end of the day, they're doing all these things voluntarily. Um, They're implementing all these policies voluntarily. The Federal Election Commission in the U.S., Congress has failed to act uh, to require platforms to not only craft certain policies or to be transparent about the actions that they are in fact taking. And I think this is really a a huge failure of the US uh, regulatory system in not requiring more. Uh, So, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, you're right. I mean, 
to go back to where we started off, I love the fact that platforms are thinking much more proactively about electoral integrity now. I love the fact that they're taking voluntary steps in the direction of creating greater transparency and more clearly outlining policies and and their approaches to moderation. However, I don't really know what they're doing behind the scenes. Um, We don't really know the scope of enforcement beyond what they choose to voluntarily report. We don't know um, how interpretively flexible these policies are. And in fact, one thing we have learned pretty consistently over the years with increasing disclosures across all the major platforms is that oftentimes policies are very flexible. Oftentimes, they make decisions about when they're going to enforce them and when they're not based on who's politically powerful uh, and who's not. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I agree 100 percent with you. Uh, this is a massive problem and one where the I think the U.S. regulatory system has really failed uh, its citizens. So the listener can check out the piece on Tech Policy Press to go through some of the specifics of the evolution of these uh, platform <laughs> policies. But I want to focus a little bit on manipulated media. You write in particular that these various platforms have kind of thought this through a little bit more. So they're clearly responding to all the, I guess, everybody listening to this has seen, you know, lots of stable diffusion and Dolly images and GPT-3 related material that's filling their social feeds these days. Or People are uh, very fascinated by these AI generated uh, images and the like. The stuff's getting better and better. The platforms, to some extent, are putting words on paper again about how they're going to handle this stuff. Uh, What do you make of it? First of all, I just want to amplify your concern here, right? Is that every cycle we've basically seen the ability to more seamlessly manipulate text, visual images, videos become amplified and then also be able to use as a strategic political tool or weapon against opponents. And this continues, and and I suspect um, that with the continual development of technology, it's going to continue uh, well into the future. I think all the major platforms that we looked at have policies to some extent about manipulating various video content in, in certain ways. And some go farther than others, for instance. So, you know, I think when it comes to meta, for instance, It doesn't apply to content uh, that's related to parody or satire. They've pretty much carved out that they weren't going to enforce content uh, that's edited to emit words that were said or change the orders of words. And one reason why is because this stuff is done in a matter of course of politics across political advertising, et cetera. Is it potentially misleading? Absolutely. And in which case, Facebook and other companies have said, we might label it as misinformation. We might take other steps against it. But, you know, these practices are widespread. And I, I should say, too, I mean, this also raises an important point. When you look at television advertisements as well, taking things out of context, uh, providing newspaper headlines as like images that run next to something a candidate said, often these deceptive practices, these practices designed to confuse voters are generally so much in part of the American political landscape that I think platforms have really struggled with where and how do they draw the line. So they've generally tried to take stronger action against things like inauthentic actors, global actors, deliberately manipulated practices um, that's meant to confuse voters in certain ways. 
Um, they generally have sort of fallen on the side of doing things like labeling, for instance, to try to to try to at least make voters aware uh, that the information they're looking at is misleading. But at the end of the day, I think it's really hard to draw a line on manipulated content, but the line may be a little bit easier on authenticity. When we set out to do our original report, and and I think actually in a few pieces for you, Bridget Barrett and I made a set of arguments that you know the brightest red line should be around voter suppression information, information that's designed for people to undermine their own accountability at the at the ballot box, right? But that broadly, there's a wider sphere of content that might be problematic from some perspectives, but platforms should have more leniency with or evaluate more contextually, both in terms of the intent of that content and also its potential effects, right? So when I'm looking at something like parodies or satires, or even information that that's false, but it's the intent is more to ridicule or engage in hyperbole to send up another politician um, or a political party, et cetera. To me, that's more of things that would occur in the course of normal political debate. I don't necessarily think that is that approaches that bright red line when it comes to undermining electoral accountability. So therefore, platforms should probably err on the side of contextually evaluating it, but ultimately letting it stand. This is where these calls get really difficult. I'm not the sort of person who says, all we need is a really deliberative public sphere with only good information. Things should be non-emotional and rational and reasoned, et cetera. Yeah, if the world worked like that, great. But the reality is it doesn't. Um, and a lot of political debate is is hyperbole and emotion and satire and parody. All those things are time-honored ways of engaging in various forms of political debate. And I kind of err on the side of, of voters and political actors being smart enough to determine and engage in those things um, and figure out like what's true or not. Versus the sorts of stuff that we're talking about, the pernicious effects of saying an election is stolen, the pernicious effects of saying that people are illegally voting in a way that's taking away other people's rights to have their votes counted. To me, those are far more pernicious than doctored headlines on articles or parody accounts or, you know, the pitch bot accounts, which frankly, are funny <laughs> because they're they're often parodies of exactly the sorts of things the New York Times would do, right? So one of the things you outline in the, the piece for Tech Policy Press is the fact that there are so many entities now working to bring accountability to the platforms with regard to uh, their policies around elections. You mentioned a number of them, the Bipartisan Policy Center, working with the Integrity Institute, which now has its technology platforms election database and has just put out a new database uh, and, and project around misinformation, uh, the NYU Ad Observatory and its efforts around ads, uh, the Stanford Cyber Policy Center and SIO, um, the work that it's done with the Election Integrity Partnership, et cetera. And I suppose somewhat, you know, these entities are kind of stepping into the breach that you described earlier, this regulatory breach, where uh, because there's no real government effort to think about these things on some level, um, you're seeing civil society groups, academics, et cetera, uh, step up and uh, kind of do this activity. But we're also sort of now seeing even this activity uh, by these universities, by these uh, nonpartisan groups uh, itself being politicized. Huh, yeah. 
Um, so first of all, let me say I agree 100%. I mean, I think if there's any one really strikingly clear positive development since 2016, when everyone was caught flat-footed, there's now a vibrant ecosystem of research centers and, and advocacy organizations and civil society groups um, that are working in partnership and uh, coordination often um, to provide more transparency, to provide think tank style um, policy briefings, et cetera, that advise platforms on what they should do, um, and also holding them accountable for when they fail, I think, at their responsibilities to protect uh, electoral integrity. I think the the natural outgrowth of that is that bad actors, actors who want to claim illegitimately power for their political party, who are acting in bad faith, who are working to undermine U.S. democratic institutions, who are looking to undermine the peaceful transfer of power, will and have been criticizing those civil society groups that are acting in the public interest because they know that they will benefit and their party will benefit um, to the extent that they can work to lessen the transparency and the scrutiny of platforms and, you know, their efforts to secure election integrity. What bad actors are trying to do, especially on the right, um, which is we've seen time and again, this is not a common feature of the right and the left in the U.S. It's primarily a right wing effort. But, you know, people are going against the universities and the research institutes that are working hard to study things like mis- and disinformation, to study things like voter suppression. Um, they're calling partisan what is actually in the public interest. And this is deeply disturbing because it's those are efforts to intimidate and harass and ultimately shut up um, those researchers, those centers that are acting in the voters' interest to ensure that votes can be counted freely and fairly, and we can have um, robust democratic debate in this country. You know, it seems like every election cycle now is just a live experiment of kind of whether we can somehow get through it um, with the discourse on social media playing out as it does. I don't know. Do you do you suspect that this is the new normal, that this is the way things will be? Um, or do you have any sense that the electorate is maturing or the platforms are maturing, um, that we're kind of getting maybe over the hump somehow with regard to social media and its role in elections? Well, my own perspective on this is that platforms are generally downstream of a set of of deeper political problems. And I think when you continue to have one of the two main parties in the U.S. being captured by anti-democratic actors who deny uh, the security of elections, who don't believe in the peaceful transfer of power, who are trying to unfairly tip the scales of electoral competition in their favor, we will continue to be in this mess and continue to be in this predicament. That's what these platforms are responding to. These platforms are responding to the weaponization of disinformation on the right in a way that undermines the peaceful transfer of power and democratic elections. You know, the numbers are truly alarming of the number of Republicans that are on the ballot um, that don't believe that the 2020 elections were free and fair. And that is a fundamental political problem. 
it's a clear sign of a party that's no longer willing to engage in fair electoral activities and no longer willing to lose fairly. And that's the bigger problem. And until that gets solved, I think the rest of us are going to just be playing catch up and be fighting rear guard actions to do what we can. So to some extent, the uh, platforms are possibly reaching a kind of point of diminishing returns when it comes to at least the policy. The the language seems to be closer and closer to uh, quote unquote right, uh, even if the implementation is not right. And certainly the context is, let's just say, decaying. Yeah, I mean, I I think, again, to go back to something I said earlier, I think all the major platforms that are operating in the U.S. have embraced, at least in principle, their role of democratic gatekeepers, that they are going to play a clear role in trying to uphold electoral integrity in the U.S. You're right to question whether, from an enforcement standpoint, they're going to be living up to that, but I think that's at least a stated aspiration. But I think at the end of the day, as we've continued to see, is that a very determined right wing that rejects electoral institutions will remain powerful with or without platforms on their side. And there's no better case of this uh, than Donald Trump, who has been deplatformed from both Facebook and, and Twitter, and yet has expanded his reach into the Republican Party. And election deniers have expanded their movement within the Republican Party to the extent that they now threaten to capture that party uh, and to make it anti-democratic. The big lie is a kind of reality now. And I suppose we'll see how it plays out uh, in this cycle. And uh, perhaps we'll uh, have you back on to debrief after the fact. Yes. (laughs) Um, And and hopefully we can keep our democracy uh, when we talk again. Thank you very much, Daniel. All right. Thanks, Justin. Bipartisan Policy Center is a Washington, D.C.-based think tank that says it, quote, actively fosters bipartisanship by combining the best ideas from both parties to promote health, security, and opportunity for all Americans, unquote. Katie Harbath, a former Facebook public policy director, joined the center as a fellow and with research analyst Collier Fernickes and in partnership with the Integrity Institute, produced a report based on a database of close to 600 company announcements pertaining to elections. I had the chance to speak to Katie and Collier about the report and to ask Katie about what reflections it prompted for her, given the 10 years she spent working on these problems and shaping the announcements included in the report that were made by Facebook. My name is Katie Harbath. I am founder and CEO of Anchor Change, which is a company I started after being at Facebook for 10 years, where I was a public policy director. And I'm also a fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Hi, I'm Collier Fernikes. I'm a research analyst at the Bipartisan Policy Center on our Digital Democracy Project. A brief history of tech and elections, a 26-year journey, uh, this new report compendium that you put together for the Bipartisan Policy Center. Um, What inspired this? What had you set out to do this? So I've been thinking about this a lot coming out of Facebook, really trying to kind of do a retrospective of myself and 
my first campaign was actually the 2004 campaign in working in digital. And after January 6th and really just seeing how much technology has changed democracy, I've really been doing a lot of reflection on that and looking backwards. And I started just doing some research on going through my own memorabilia, my own journals, things of that nature. And then in talking to folks like at the Bipartisan Policy Center and others, others were also interested in that of like, what lessons can we maybe learn from how rapidly technology was changing campaigns and how quickly new platforms were coming on board, the problems the companies were facing, how they were handling them, um, how might we put all of that together? And so we started first by pulling together all of the links that we could find of the tech company announcements around elections. And we released that in August of this year. And then we started working to put together the actual report to put some more analysis and context around the themes and things that we saw. It does seem to me that uh, just that collection of announcements um, as a kind of historical artifact uh, is a useful one. And it does let you sort of, you know, go through and see some of the trends um, and a shift perhaps from optimism to maybe grave concern, even perhaps uh, (laughs) a more defensive posture by the tech firms uh, in the latter part. And I want to get into that a little bit. But first, kind of take us back to the beginning. There's no doubt someone listening to this podcast who was not alive when the first uh, campaign websites went up, which was which was only 1996. But take us back to then. How did things start out? So going back to 1996, it was two years after Al Gore and the Clinton administration had announced their policy around trying to bring the internet more to, in a commercial sense, to more people, more and more people. I remember, I think that was around when I got my first computer and Prodigy was the first um, software that we used with dial-up internet to get the internet. And then AOL was kind of coming on, on the scene. Microsoft was creating a lot of these computers and the software packages and stuff like that. And so In 1996, when it was Bob Dole versus Bill Clinton for the presidential campaign, a lot of the stories, when you look at it, was the innovation of how not only were the campaigns now using the internet to get people news and information, but a lot of news organizations were first getting online during that period of time. That's when MSNBC was being formed with Microsoft and NBC, and they created a Decision 96 web page for people to go to. So it was very much rooted in getting people information. And it was still this sort of newfangled tool that people could use to go on the computer and get it and not necessarily just have to be relying on TV or radio or print in which to do so. And you call that MSNBC section, Decision 96, that announcement, uh, the first tech company announcement about elections you could find. It is. It's the very first one that we could find. There, there may have been other ones, but you know, at that time, Facebook didn't exist. Twitter didn't exist. Google, I don't think existed then because they were created in 1998, if I remember correctly. So your the number of tech companies were, were limited. It was your Microsofts, your AOLs. Um, maybe Netscape was just getting launched up off the ground. So you know, it was a very different tech landscape than what we think of today when we think about tech. So in the report, you've got these excellent, you know, screenshots of these original Dole Kemp 96 uh, campaign sites, Clinton Gore 96, uh, these take me back just to even to see 
clickable kind of MP3 uh, on one of those sites to know how sort of technologically advanced that must have seemed at the time <laughs> for someone to have put that onto a campaign website. But, you know, uh, things move along pretty quickly. Um, and you kind of take us through some milestones, uh, particularly in the sort of mid-aughts, things like Google bombing um, and perhaps the first major gaffe uh, posted on YouTube to affect an election. Um, how, how did things look around 2005, 2006? Yeah, so 2005, you're coming out of the 04 election where President Bush wins re-election. The focus there, again, was kind of more websites. Email was starting to emerge. You had online the beginning of online donations, online organizing. Remember, Howard Dean in 04 was was praised for his use of uh, tools like Meetup um, in order for for people to get engaged. They were doing their fundraising, their fundraising bombs um, and stuff like that. Google bombing is is a really interesting one where folks were manipulating search results so that if you, for instance, search for miserable failure, it would bring up George W. Bush's website. If you search for Rick Santorum, it would not bring up Rick Santorum's site, but it would bring up a site that um, somebody had created that was not flattering to the senator, let's let's just say. And um, at the time, it was sort of seen not necessarily as an integrity issue, as we might see it today, or a trust and safety issue, but people sort of manipulating the way the search engine worked to scrape links and other things to decide what was at the top, it was it was sort of more just seen as a, as I, I even hate to say it, like kind of a cute political trick that that they were doing. But it definitely becomes a problem for Google later on down the line as as we get into the turn into the 2010s and stuff like that. But the other major gaffe we had you mentioned was so YouTube was created in 2005, and in 2006, then Senator George Allen was campaigning, and he had a tracker, somebody that was videotaping everything that the senator was saying, and the senator called him a racial slur. And rather than what how it maybe would have worked in the past, which was the campaign would try to get a reporter to report on it or try to get it on cable news or network news, they just uploaded it to YouTube and it exploded. And all of a sudden now politicians are realizing that anything they say anywhere can not only be taped, but can be very easily distributed to the public in a way that does not have that that media filter on it to stop it. And it completely changed campaigning as we knew it because you had more and more of people going and videotaping what the politicians were saying. You had a lot more things start to be be leaked, but you also start to have campaigns to start to upload videos and such of their own and trying to use that medium in order to engage with voters. 2006, the same year as George Allen, uh, his gaffe has posted to YouTube um, and arguably, uh, you know, affecting that that campaign uh, significantly. Facebook launches Newsfeed uh, and its first political ads uh, and sort of the dawn of the social media age, I suppose, is upon us. Yeah, Facebook, you know, was created February of 2004. And not surprisingly, because the way Facebook was launched, which was, you know, university by university, right? The first places we saw the platform being used for politics was for university campaigns, Uh, student president, student council, uh, things of that nature. And 
Um, it wasn't the Facebook ads that we know of it as today um, that they were launching, but there were definitely student politicians who were buying ads and stories that we could find in university papers that were saying that. And then, yes, Facebook introduced the feed. I think sometimes people forget there was once a Facebook where you had to go to everybody's individual profile in order to see who they were. Then they introduced updates. And then when the feed came, now you could start to see all of that in one place. And you could start to get news and information from all of your friends. And a lot of them were using that to talk about the midterms and and what was happening. You depict this post from Facebook's blog from November 6th of, I assume this is 2006, where someone associated with uh, Facebook called Ezra Callahan um, appears to be imploring folks uh, to go and vote uh, the project manager for the election 2006 network. Was that a part of Facebook? Was that a Facebook initiative? It was a Facebook initiative. It was the blog that they had back then that they would do that they would do updates on. And so, yeah, it was the first instance that I could find in talking to some of my former colleagues and stuff like that, where, where Facebook on an actual official Facebook property was using it to try to encourage its users to participate in the, in the electoral process. And it really is written in that kind of early bloggy, you know, direct kind of somewhat ill-considered and likely uh, little lawyered uh, language from early Facebook days. It's hard to imagine a post like this being written uh, today by that company, you know, where all the bases are, of course, checked, I'm sure, 50 times before something goes public. Um, But you call this the optimistic era, 2007, 2008. uh, Companies like Tumblr come on the scene. We've got the launch of the iPhone. Um, MySpace is still a presence and still important. What's driving this optimism? uh, There's another senator that kind of comes on the stage as well. So I think what starts to drive a lot of this optimism is um, as we go into 2008, you have Senator Barack Obama now on the scene. And um, Chris Hughes, who's one of the co-founders of Facebook, went to go work on the senator's campaign. And you know, at first, it was not a given that he was going to win. He was an underdog in the 2008 race to, sec- to time Senator Clinton around this. And coming out of that race, President Obama was really um, celebrated for, for utilizing technology to really engage with voters, to organize them, to be using these new tools in a way that a lot of the other campaigns were not. And that really continued to accelerate the use of Twitter was now on the scene. Facebook continued to be used. YouTube continued to be used. And we go into the 2011 where you have, where I think is the peak of the optimistic era with the Arab Spring, where you have these platforms being used by protesters in places like Egypt and Tunisia, um, where they can't get access to any other tools, anything else on the internet, but they can use social media in order to organize and it topples authoritarian governments. And people are, some some people in Egypt named their kids Facebook because they were so grateful for the platform existing and being able to help them to do this. And right after that, that was early 2011, you're starting the 2012 news cycle, which was one where I think was the most where we saw the number of stories and everybody talking about how President Obama's campaign was really revolutionizing the use of data and digital to um, do micro-targeting of voters, 
to have not just random people phone banking folks, but like, let's have your friends be phone banking you or your next door neighbors be, be phone banking you and coming out of that yet again, that election even more so was, I think was, was Senator now then president Obama very much cemented as a digital and innovative leader and candidate of really knowing how to utilize these tools to propel him into a second term. So this period of optimism doesn't last, of course. Um, 2015, 2016, various things are happening around the world. Um, You've got, uh, of course, the sort of Brexit referendum going on. You've got the emergence of, of Donald J. Trump as a candidate. You also point to, you know, some changes technologically. You've got live streaming, Meerkat, Periscope, sorry, Meerkat, Periscope, Facebook Live uh, come onto the scene. You've got uh, trending topics uh, becoming a a sort of controversy on Facebook. Um, And the tech firms, Facebook, Google, Twitter, sponsoring primary debates. Yeah, the first um, actual sponsoring from a tech company of a primary debate was YouTube and CNN back in 08. This is where we had the famous snowman who asked the question around um, to ask the question around climate change, uh, which was interesting. And then, yeah, as we went into there were a few in 2012, but 20 the 2016 election we had um, at at Facebook, we co-sponsored a debate with Fox News, Uh, Twitter co-sponsored some, Google co-sponsored some. So it was uh, becoming commonplace where the networks were wanting to partner with tech companies to better help more people to have access to the debates, but then also utilize data from these platforms to understand what issues were people talking about the most, how were they talking about the candidates, to to incorporate that into the questioning of what they were doing, in addition to the live streaming of it on their their platforms. So face uh, fact checking becomes an issue um, at this time frame. Um, I'm also looking at reproduction in your report of a cover of the Economist, my former employer, that reads the art of the lie, post-truth politics in the age of social media. Um, so clearly the problem of misinformation, disinformation um, had had been recognized uh, at that moment. And then of course in 2017, 2018, um, we've got, you know, just an incredible story around Russian interference uh, found on the platforms, um, the role of the collection of, of you know, personal data uh, from Facebook, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, of course. And then I guess just the beginning of maybe perhaps the dark times uh, with regard to the relationship between social media uh, in elections, this dramatic shift that you refer to. Yeah, I call it the reckoning um, time period that for me really started on May 9th, 2016. That was the date of the Philippines election where Rodrigo Duterte won his election, but it was also the day where the trending topics controversy broke for Facebook. This was where a contractor accused the company of suppressing conservative content and then a trending section that they had of like the most popular, the most popular stories. A month later, you had Brexit. All throughout this, Donald Trump is starting to post things on the platforms that is really pushing the boundaries of their community standards. And like you said, more and more people were starting to question this sort of post-truth politics, but it really wasn't until the surprise election of President Trump that then it wasn't a month later in December that Facebook started launching its first fact-checking initiatives. Um, And coming out of that election too, it wasn't Russian interference that was the first story. It was Macedonian teenagers 
spreading fake news in order to make money. And that's what a lot of people were focused on as well as just like, how did Trump do this? And it wasn't until we got into that late 2017 time period where the platforms were announcing that they found content from the Russian Internet Research Agency. We have the first hearings with the tech executives that that are starting to happen. And you really start to see the companies really come under the microscope and, and having to start answer some really hard questions about the downsides that their platforms can have on democracy. So on this podcast, of course, we've talked quite a lot about uh, the 2020 cycle, about January 6th, about the relationship between social media and the big lie, um, questions around incitement to violence. I think I want to step back just a second, though, and ask you a little bit about some of the I guess, broader trends that you extract from this look. Um, There are a handful of them. Um, One, of course, and and perhaps uh, the listener might already have cottoned onto this based on the examples that we've been discussing, is that almost all of the, you know, election-related announcements from the big tech firms relate to the U.S. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, And although international election announcements have increased. It really is still just focused on the U.S. And I feel like at this point, tech companies really need to take a look at what they're doing and make sure that they're having a more holistic strategy, you know, writ large across the world, because there are still so many concerning things that pop up here and there. I mean, we have a couple different elections. We, you know, Brazil was just Sunday, you know, a lot of things coming up. You know, people around the world use these platforms, so it's important that they are getting a way to have or authoritative information as well. And I think one of the other biggest trends, at least that I saw when I was making these charts, is just that the announcements have increased so much over the past five years, probably, um, across platforms, just the number of announcements. And a lot of that has to do with 2015, 2016, and leading into 2017, 2018, the amount of attention being paid to misdis malinformation um, and foreign interference. But you know, as we got into 2020, obviously a lot more turned domestic, and that has been the focus of tech companies, at least throughout their announcements of this year, what they're trying to combat because we're still, in a lot of ways, relitigating. 2020 over and over and over again. So we'll see what happens in the midterms with this. But I I think that posts are going to continue to increase, especially as we, you know, throughout the election years and years to come, because tech companies are not not going to be in this space. So on the point of authoritative information, um, you know, we're all used to now announcements from folks like Nick Clegg about all the great work that Uh, platforms like Facebook and Twitter and others are doing to provide voters with quote unquote authoritative information or, uh, you know, proper information about how to vote, where to vote, et cetera. Um, Most of the platforms are very proud of, you know, the scale of uh, the number of people who see or interact with that information. You point out in your report that it's not just the social media platforms doing that type of stuff. Now you've got Uber and Lyft announcing efforts to get people to the polls, Amazon, Twitch, Hulu, Discord, Pandora, uh, all making announcements about their efforts to help people vote. Is any of this stuff working? Um, or to some extent, you know, do you see these platforms' efforts in this regard as really sort of out of 
scale or out of whack with regard to the scale of the problem of misinformation uh, on tech platforms with regard to you know their effort around authoritative information. Let me chime in on a historical thing, and then Collier can kind of take a bit more of the of a bit more of the recent. So. In 2012, Facebook actually released a, a scientifically reviewed paper in Nature in Nature that showed that people that saw that their friends voted, right? There's a, many people have probably done this themselves. There's that message that comes on the top of the newsfeed where you share that you're that you voted in that election and you can share that with your friends. And there have been, we did it, well, then I was there, we <laughs> did a study that showed that it does, it does encourage more people to participate and be a part of the polls. And then Collier here at B- on the Bipartisan Policy Center has been a partner with Facebook in doing this and working with election officials on this and can share a bit more of like what she's heard in terms of the impact. Yeah, definitely. So in 2020, BPC was a partner with Facebook or Meta and then worked with Facebook and Instagram and also <laughs> with Alphabet, so Google and YouTube, to be partners to do fact-checking and labeling on posts. So we were the fun message that would pop up whenever you made a post about voting on Facebook or Instagram or anything like that. And honestly, I think that did have a positive impact, at least from what we've seen and heard from election officials specifically, because the information that we gave to these platforms to use for the fact checking and for, you know, the bottom half sheet are facts from election officials themselves. And I will say that one thing, one step that can be taken is to localize this information further. Um, I know platforms like Nextdoor are starting to get more and more into the election space. That's going to be the perfect place to get information locally about elections. But in terms of, you know, voter registration efforts, but also just facts about what your options are varied on your state and also making sure people understand what processes are. Because of the pandemic, we saw an increase, a massive increase of voting by mail, obviously, because a lot of people didn't feel comfortable coming to vote in person. So not a lot of people were really familiar with being able to either receive a ballot ballot in the mail or apply for a ballot and get one in the mail and then return it via Dropbox or put it in your mailbox. It's not something a lot of people knew. And a lot of the misinformation that we saw coming out of 2020 was misinformation about the vote by mail process and whether, you know, the ballot dumps or you know, people throwing away ballots once they get them or election officials tampering with them and things like that. So actually talking about the process, what happens and what's true and what's not is helpful for, you know, the election officials that actually have to administer these elections, but also for people to understand so they're not confused about what their options are. And especially in a health crisis or a climate crisis or you know, any disastrous event. I can't get over the idea, though, that uh, unfortunately, a false or out of context video about a mail-in ballot dump, as you uh, put it, travels so much faster and so much, you know, uh, faster than the, certainly the platforms can contain it or any fact checking can be applied than the authoritative information that the platforms put forward. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I I, I don't know if we'll ever get to a point where those things will balance out. Yeah, well, I mean, 
and this is something I saw at the Trust and Safety Research Conference, but MDM is a lot easier to consume than authoritative information. It's easier to spread because more people are willing to believe it because they're willing to believe either something that they, you know, like a confirmation bias type thing or something that aligns with their political ideology or hear what political leaders are telling them. Like, it's just easier for your brain to consume. And, you know, that's why we fall for things like phishing scams or something else. Like there's something about that rather than just hearing actual facts sometimes that makes it harder to push actual authoritative information. But I think that doesn't mean that people should just stop, you know, or like platforms should stop these efforts because it still needs to be done and it does have an impact. It's a continual trying to crack the rock. And if I can add, I think we have seen some success, you know, with the Ukrainian invasion, um, there has been showing that like pre-bunking and warning people of, of different things that they might see has been helping to somewhat lessen the spread of it or people believing some of that mis and disinfo. There's been some other research that's come out with that too. So I agree with you, Justin. I think that the jury is definitely still out as to the effectiveness and the right way to, to effectively be pushing this. But I do think there's at least some encouraging research that trying to get a lot of that out there and doing more of it does have some beneficial effects. You point out uh, that 2023 will see elections in countries like Nigeria, Turkey, Argentina, and then 2024. I know, uh, Katie, you've been focused on a big year for elections, not just here in the U.S., but also Indonesia, India, Ukraine, Taiwan, Mexico, the U.K., uh, and uh, bits of the European Union. Um, so 2024 uh, really could reshuffle all things. Um, so how the tech platforms are managing these issues uh, uh, by that date, certainly will have a, a big effect. And of course, in the US, I suppose, we'll, we'll have to argue now over whether Donald Trump, if he's running, uh, should be re-platformed. We still don't know necessarily what will come of Elon Musk's point of view on that, if he becomes the new owner of Twitter. Uh, YouTube hasn't been terribly clear about how it will handle that question, and Facebook's taking it up as well. Yeah, I mean, I think we are in for a lot of changes and evolution over the next two years. Not only are we going to have all of those different fronts that you mentioned in different countries that not just the tech companies, but others have to be following and, and looking at that question of President Trump's replatforming, Facebook has said they'll make that decision by January 7th. So that will be something that I think people will be debating a lot more. On top of that, we're going to have a lot of changes that are happening in the tech world. You're starting to see crypto and NFTs starting to come up as new technologies that people are using. The types of algorithms and the types of content that they're showing you, whether it's TikTok or Facebook changing its algorithms so it's more unconnected content, actually puts more power in the platforms and what the inputs are for the algorithms of what you're seeing. I think political advertising is going to change a lot given Apple's changes and Google's plan changes. And on top of all of that, Europe is going to start to enforce the DSA and DMA there. And so, and we have all these Supreme Court cases yeah. that, I mean, I just, it gets anxiety induced. just thinking about all the different things that can really, we are going to be literally building this plane while I hope it's still flying and we're not just trying to build our parachute while we jump out of it, but it is 
it is a lot of, again, rapid change that to take us back to the early 2000s, when every cycle you had a new platform that was coming online and every cycle people were just trying to keep up with the technological change, we're in that again. And I think it is worth, this is part of the reason we wanted to write this was, can we use this as as much as we need to stay in the moment, take a bit of a step back and kind of think about what would we have done differently back then to try to prevent some of these problems as we're going through this rapid change now to maybe help us be a little smarter. We're not gonna be able to see around every corner. We're not gonna be able to prevent every bad thing from happening, but we can use some of the wisdom that we can learn from the past to try to think about how we can do this better in the future. Katie, you mentioned that this is uh, in part sort of personal reflection for you. And to some extent you are grading your own homework here, um, given the number of years you were working on these. I'm sure your hands were on many of these announcements that are linked to in your analysis in the time frame that you were working on elections at Facebook. As you well know, as we've discussed, um, there are folks who will forever harbor concerns over that time period um, and over the function of that company. But how are you, if you know, to the thing that you just said, looking back on it, are there a couple of things in general that perhaps do differently with hindsight? Assuming that I can have all the product resources and everything, the benefit that comes with, with hindsight in doing all of this, I think there's a couple of things that really stick out to me. One is particularly around political advertising and how we think about those transparency rules. And I think some of the FEC decisions early on in the internet of kind of being a hands-off regulatory body, I think may have been a mistake um, in trying to help these tech companies think about how do we better track what's happening online. I think the incentive structure of the internet has done a lot to lead us to where we're chasing clicks and we get that immediate satisfaction of knowing what messages work, um, what's resonating, what's not resonating, while both amazing also tends to cause people, I think, to keep going more to the extremes because they're trying to get that attention. They're trying to get those clicks that um, I would have, you know, again, if I could wave my magic wand, do that. More personally, and I was a part of all that in campaigning. I was the one making those videos. Like I was the one chasing those clicks. And then on the Facebook side, like I think that recognizing a lot sooner that there was going to be ways that people were going to try to manipulate these platforms for harm. We had those rose colored glasses on for so long in the optimistic phase. Like we thought the goal was to have the president of the United States using these platforms to talk directly to voters. We thought that that was going to be a positive thing and something that we all wanted to have happen. And we clearly are seeing the need for gatekeepers and how do you help hold them accountable in the online space? President Trump's for that, that post in December of 2015 around the Muslim ban and how the platform handled that. If we had had labels back then or other ways to think about that, would that have changed his behavior in any way? Maybe not. I, it's hard to know in hindsight, but um, doing some of that and then just paying more attention to what was happening around the world, thinking about building these infrastructures a lot sooner of trying to find not just missing disinfo, but hate speech and other things that, that were happening internationally. I just wish there was so much stuff that we would have started building out much, 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 much sooner than, than what we ended up doing. It's a good, interesting question, how the sort of like reflexive nature of some of the platform interventions might have changed the trajectory of things or even of, of certain individuals' behaviors 
Um, but unfortunately, with Facebook and with Twitter, of course, very little action was taken to steer the way that that individual uh, and, and certainly other demagogues have used the platform over time. Absolutely. And I think that, again, we can't change the past, right? We are where we are in this. And but there are lessons that we can we can learn from that and be thinking about, you know, I think one of the things we all have yet to grapple with is how what does it mean to safely grow if you are a new platform, if you are one that is just coming on the scene and does doesn't have the resources to build out a trust and safety team or policy teams and have experts on this. And you are also fighting for survival. You're fighting for funding. You're fighting for users. And that continues, I think, to be a tough thing and disconnect between Silicon Valley and those that are building a lot of these tools and those like we met, you know, at the trust and safety research conference last week um, and other places who are, who are trying to think about how do we, how do we keep these things safe so that they don't just end up being overrun by bad actors. And we eventually get to the place where we can amplify the good and mitigate the bad. Well, we'll see uh, if the next chapter of the history of tech and elections takes another positive turn. Um, Sounds like we'll find out soon enough. And when we do, perhaps we'll talk about it again. Katie Collier, thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.